Take your Bibles, please, and turn to the second chapter of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2 is where we are today. We are picking up once again our series, Turning Points, Pivotal Moments in the book of Acts. Throughout the book of Acts, we are going to just kind of land on some significant points of change in the way that God was working in the church in the first century. What we're going to see is that so much of what they experienced and what they had to care about is very relevant for what we're experiencing today and what we have to care about. But today, we're looking, of course, at Acts chapter 2, which means Pentecost. And so here's the key concept for today as you find that passage. Let the Holy Spirit have all of you. That's the emphasis that we'll return to in a moment. But first, let's set the scene. Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit. What a scene it must have been. Can you imagine the details there? It must have been exciting and fascinating and really a little bit scary when you think of it, the sound of a blustery wind but no wind, things that looked like fire but they really weren't fire per se, little tongues of flame on the tops of the heads of the people in the room as the apostles met, and then the ability to speak languages that they never studied and they never really uh, went to school for and they're speaking languages they never have learned and they're just the right languages for the people who are listening out there in the streets as the apostles go out into a public place. It's a scene of amazement, a scene of excitement. And all of a sudden, there's a surge of interest in the things of the church and the church is jump-started as it starts here in Pentecost. Ten days have passed in Acts chapter 2 since the ascension of Jesus Christ. And the apostles have obeyed the direction of Christ when he said, stay in the city of Jerusalem. And they have stayed. And they've been fairly quiet, but they haven't been idle. Up and th- uh, throughout these 10 days, what they've done is in their meeting, they've encouraged one another, and they've engaged in filling that vacant slot. Judas, the betrayer, is no longer among them, and they choose Matthias as the 12th apostle to take that slot, and we promptly don't hear about Matthias ever again. But don't take that as a black mark against Matthias. That's not it at all. Rather, take that as a lesson that the Bible doesn't tell us everything about everything. But the Bible tells us what God wants us to know. So Matthias kind of goes off the the radar screen a little bit, but fair to say he's serving the Lord. But in those 10 days, one of the things that the apostles became, I think, painfully aware of is what they lacked. And what they lacked was the direct presence of God in their lives. For the last few years, they have been fellowshipping with Jesus of Nazareth, God the Son in the flesh, but since his ascension 10 days ago, that has been an absence. They haven't had that direct presence of God in their lives, but Pentecost changes it all. So let's pick up the reading, chapter 2, verse 1. You follow along as I read. It says this, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They, see, they, they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. It's a fantastic scene. 
And it makes you step back and say, really, what's going on? What is God up to here with these details in Pentecost? And the first thing that comes to my mind is that in Acts chapter 2, what we see God doing is he's taking something old. In fact, he's taking something ancient and he's making it new. He's breathing new life and new meaning into something they were very familiar with. Because you see, Pentecost was a Jewish holiday. Pentecost means 50th. And on the 50th day from the Sunday of Passover, or I should say from the Sabbath of Passover, excuse me, 50 days from that Sabbath, they celebrated Pentecost holiday. It was a Jewish holiday. It was an ancient holiday. And it was a holiday that was uh, given to celebrate the ingathering of the harvest. Pentecost was like our Thanksgiving And so they gathered in this Thanksgiving holiday, and it was one of three uh, uh, feast days that were called pilgrim feasts, feasts that they, they tried to return to Jerusalem from wherever they were, not only in the Holy Land, but around the entire empire to come and rejoice in Jerusalem. Now, by the time of Jesus in the first century, the Pentecost holiday has taken on a second overlay of meaning. It's not only a harvest celebration, God providing physical provision for his people, but also at this point in history, they were celebrating God's provision of the law. In other words, his spiritual provision for his people as well. Both of these themes created the the, the substance of Pentecost in Jesus' day. And I said it was one of the three pilgrim feasts. There was Passover, which was the feast where they came together in Jerusalem. There was the Feast of Booths, often called the Feast of Tabernacles, and there was Pentecost. Some of your Bibles will call it the Feast of Weeks. Like I said, this is a Thanksgiving feast, a time when we rejoice in all that God has given to us. But God gives something completely unexpected on this particular Pentecost. God takes this holiday, which everybody was used to, which everybody understood, and he breathed new meaning into this holiday. And it becomes for us, we look back on it as, in a sense, the birthday of the Christian church. And what we find in the the birthday of the church is that what's birthed is a multilingual church and a multi ethnic church. Both of these dynamics happen in Pentecost. And I want you to see that this idea of God taking something old that we're used to and breathing new life and new meaning to it, into it, that is, in a sense, the lesson for the individual Christian from the outline of what's going on in Pentecost. Because that should be part of our Christian experience. God taking something old, the life that we're used to, the experience that we're used to, and continually and ongoing making it a transformed experience. It happens in the life of the believer when we surrender more and more of ourselves to the influence of the Holy Spirit. Pentecost shows us that. When we say yes to the Holy Spirit filling us up All of a sudden, things will begin to change. The old patterns will die away. New patterns will come in our life. But there's a second meaning, a second detail in Pentecost, and that is, obviously, we see here that when God shows up, you know it. When God shows up, he gives evidence of his presence. The sound of wind, but no real breeze. 
tongues of fire, but nobody's hair is being singed. Something unusual, something strange. They're all together in the room there. And as this occurs, even Luke, even though he's a medical doctor, he's well-educated, writes in high Greek, he fails really to come to terms with words. And how am I to describe this? You see him using the word like a lot, as if a lot, kind of just making sure that there's a comparison here, but I can't quite grab a word to tell you what's happening. And these tongues like that of fire rested on the heads of the, of the apostles. Fire is often in Scripture a symbol of the presence of God. We see that regularly. Think back to the wilderness wanderings. In the 40 years in the wilderness, God gave the children of Israel a pillar of fire by night to assure them that He was near them and He was leading them. When Moses was called to be the deliverer, uh, to, to, to rescue the children of Israel from uh, Egypt. God appeared to him and spoke out of a burning bush, a bush that wasn't consumed but looked like it was on fire. The theme uh, shows up again and again in Scripture. God's presence being uh, pictured, if you will, by, by fire. And here it is again, little tongues of fire. But, but this is not a, a burning bush. This is not a pillar of fire. This is individualized fire. This is personalized fire. It's not like the, 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 the ongoing fire in the temple, but it is one by one, person by person, head by head. And God is saying something in doing that. He's saying that His indwelling is not just about the temple or location, but it's about people. He's saying that His followers, you people, you who know Christ as Savior, you are the temple of God. He dwells in you. That's the symbolism of the Holy Spirit and the fire there in Pentecost. Jesus had said back in John 16, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He didn't say the Holy Spirit's going to be near you. No, He's going to come upon you and indwell you and be a part of who you are. Now, God didn't have to picture that with fire, but He knows that we are a visual people. He knows that we like to see stuff, and so He demonstrates His presence in the tongues of fire. He doesn't travel incognito. Detail number three, and that springs from the first two, and that is when God takes residence in His people through the Holy Spirit, He wants to use His people to communicate the message. Pick up the reading in verse 5, and we'll see that happening. It says this, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? By the time we get to the action that I've just read, the apostles are no longer in the upper room in the house where the Holy Spirit came upon them. Obviously now they've moved to a public place. We're not sure where that public place was, 
but they're in a situation where the part of the crowd, the part of the pilgrimage crowd are, are around them, and they're speaking in languages that they never studied. But I want you to see how particular God is. He has them speaking languages that are represented in the crowd. It's not just any language. It is the language that will communicate to this person and to that person and to that person. God cares about the listener. God wants the listener to get the message. And if those of you who are listening to this teaching or other teachings as you're in the Word of God, God cares about you. He wants you to understand the message that He has in mind to meet your needs. And here in this crowd come from all over the empire. It's, they're multilingual. They're, they're multi-ethnic. There's multiple skin tones of people who are listening to the, the, the apostles speak their language. We see African uh, areas mentioned. We see areas that we consider to be Europe today mentioned. Obviously, the Holy Land mentioned. We see Asia Minor mentioned, Arabs mentioned. From all over the empire, they have come and they hear in their own tongue. It's a powerful statement. And the statement right from the beginning of the birth of the church is, there is no boundaries for the gospel. This is for everybody, no matter what language you speak, what color you are, whatever background you're from, God loves you. And he wants you to hear the message. And so they speak in these tongues. And God shows his presence. Of course, the question comes to us. Can God continue to cause people to speak in languages that they've never studied? Well, the answer is yes, right? Because pretty much the job description of God is you can do whatever you want. Now, he never gave me that ability when I was studying in high school. But he can do that if he wants to. But does God have to do that? No, he doesn't have to do that. But he wants to be obvious in some way. He wants his presence to be seen in your life in some way. God does not travel incognito. There will be evidence of the presence of God in the normal, growing Christian life. He wants the people around you to know that he's at work in you. And he sees that here. We see this here in the apostles speaking in tongues. So let's generalize that for a moment. Let's step away from the specifics here and ask about us. Well, what are the signs that we should be looking for that God is indeed present in a growing way, expanding his influence in me. What, what will I look like if that's really happening? And there are three things that I want you to note. Number one, you should have a growing awareness of sin. When God is working in your life, there's going to be an obvious need to kind of continually change because none of us have arrived. God's not done with any of us. When we get to glory, that's perfection, but here and now it's not. And if we're trying to convince ourselves that we're growing in the Christian life, but we have grown complacent with areas of sin in our life, if we have agreed to peacefully coexist with an area of sin in our life, we are fooling ourselves if we think we're growing spiritually. Because the evidence of God's presence is an awareness and a determination to deal with areas of sin. It's, it's, like, it's like this. It's like an exercise program. I don't know about you, but in my neighborhood during this lockdown, I see a whole lot more people jogging. I see a lot more people riding their bikes. A lot more people taking walks, trying to get out, trying to get moving, that kind of thing. And when you start an exercise program in the beginning, you know what happens at first? 
it hurts, right? You, you feel muscles that you didn't know you had. Like, well, what is that? Like, where, did that where did that go? I didn't even know I had something there that could possibly hurt. But it hurts, but it's good because it means that that's getting exercised and that's getting improved. And the same is true in the Christian life. Awareness of sin hurts a little bit. The, the conviction to deal with sin is uncomfortable, but it's a good uncomfortable because it means this is an evidence that God is working in me and I'm surrendering more ground to Him in my life. Secondly, when God is at work, you have a growing desire for the Word of God because this is the food by which we grow. A growing desire to take in this food, which is the fuel. If you don't eat physically, people around you are going to worry about you, right? Maybe you have a relative or a friend right now that you're concerned about. They're sick. They're not eating. That's the kind of person you take to a doctor. The doctor needs to prescribe something or give them some supplements or something because when you don't eat, it's an indicator that there's lack of health. The same is true for your spiritual food, the Word of God. Don't, Don't buy the lie of Satan that says that it's only for the spiritual elite. It's only, you know, the elders of the church who really need to have personal Bible study. Don't buy that lie. You need to have personal Bible study yourself. Take in the food. You need to have Bible study with other people so that we can together in a corporate way be growing in the Word of God. And I want to tell you that this is part of why going forward we're going to see a change in our church programming schedule. On Sunday morning, we're going to have our traditional service at 8.30, this service that you're in right now, 11.15. But in between, we're going to have an hour of Bible study for everybody. This entire campus is going to be involved. Everybody have a chance to get into a group, a small class, a group, and be in the Word of God. And I know it's different, and I know it's changed, but it must happen because that's how you grow. Listen for the announcements because we're going to begin in the fall a program called Rooted. Rooted is a a Bible study program that roots you in the Word and in relationships with other people. And I'm excited about it coming. I was part of a Rooted group myself just to go through it to make sure we're, we're understanding it. I will be leading one of those Rooted groups groups coming up in the fall, and we hope that this spreads like wildfire. Why? Because you have to be in the Word if you're going to grow. God wants us to do that. Thirdly, He wants us to have an increasing desire to worship together. That's an evidence of God's presence in your life, an increasing desire. We've been missing that, right? We've been missing the chance to come together and worship. We've been denied that experience, but slowly it's happening. And slowly we're opening up venues on the campus and and more and more people will be able to come. Here's what I want you to know. You you must worship together with other people if you're going to grow. I know that I'm talking now to those of you who are watching on your devices, on your television screens, because I'm looking over the people here. You all have clothes on. But you people might still have your pajamas on who are at home. You're getting used to watching me in your pajamas. You got to stop that pretty soon. Right? And you got to come to the campus as the health department allows and to, to worship together once again. Because it, we don't want to settle into some kind of a situation which says, well, I don't, I, it's not worth it. It's not worth getting up. It's not worth getting out. It's not worth going over there. As you worship together, your soul magnifies the Lord. You are blessed and it is increased in measure as we are together. We miss that. So all of these things are signs that God is working. God wants signs in your life to be present that he's working. Look for those. Pray for those. So what about the events of Pentecost? What 
What do they mean? Let's interpret a little bit what's, what's going on here. First of all, as I mentioned, when the tongues of fire settle on the individual uh, heads of the, of the apostles here, it shows us that the, the Holy Spirit wants to touch each of us personally, individually, the kind of a, a, a message of individualization, a personal encounter. And he does that when we come to faith. When we come to faith, it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who first starts that sense of conviction. I need to do something about my spiritual situation. That is a a message from the Holy Spirit. It's not because you figured it out. And then it's the Holy Spirit who changes us from the inside out. Every believer in Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 12. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. We were all given one spirit to drink. The spirit indwells each individual believer one by one, individually. You have the Holy Spirit. But there's more to the message of Pentecost. And that is that because you have the Holy Spirit, like the apostles here, the Holy Spirit wants to speak through you, believer, to those who are around you, to give a witness You know, the apostles have been without the presence of Jesus for 10 days at this point. But before Jesus left, he gave them the Great Commission. You remember those those words? Here's what he said. He said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. For the last 10 days, they're probably wondering, how are we going to do that? The last 10 days, sensing, you know, we don't know what it takes to do that. All the world? They speak different languages out there. How are we going to communicate that? What are we going to say? And the answer comes when the power of the Holy Spirit comes on them. The answer comes because the Holy Spirit gives the ability to accomplish the will of God in a miraculous way. And their ability to speak in the languages of the people who are present creates understanding out of confusion. Part of their hesitancy probably was, I don't know what to say. The Holy Spirit gave them words. And the Holy Spirit will give you words. The Holy Spirit will give you an opportunity in your life, in your example, or in the very words that you say to spread the message, I am the property of Jesus. That's exactly what the disciples, the apostles here are doing. And there's a third lesson in the events of Pentecost, and that is that God is working in the world through the Holy Spirit in a brand new way. Pentecost is a turning of a page. Pentecost is a new age because the Holy Spirit is present all throughout the Scriptures. We see the Holy Spirit working uh, in the Old Testament, but not in this way. In the Old Testament, the, the, the Spirit comes on an, in an anointing on a particular person for a particular period of time for a particular task. The Spirit comes upon them to enable them to do what God wants done. But here we see the Holy Spirit on all those who believe. The Holy Spirit entering the life of all the followers of Jesus Christ and taking up residence within. As of Pentecost and forward, that means today, if you're born again into the family of God, you have the Holy Spirit within you. Not only that, it is the Holy Spirit who enabled the transition that we call conversion. Paul explains that in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. 
talks about the Spirit, and he says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the active agent of regeneration. The word rebirth there in NIV could be translated regeneration. The Holy Spirit is the active agent that causes the spiritual change to happen in us when we say yes to Jesus Christ. You don't get saved by your own willpower. You get saved because the Spirit works that work of regeneration. He's there right in the beginning, and he stays, and he wants to use us individually. And we are called to fully surrender to him. It means let the Spirit have all of you, every part. But sometimes we make a deal. Sometimes we say, you know, God, you're going to have all that over here, but I'd like to keep this corner. I'd like to keep this habit. I'd like to keep this whatever. Just leave that alone if you would. And you're hindering the Spirit. Because fourthly, the Spirit wants to use the gifts that He will give you to be a blessing to others. In the setting of Pentecost, the gift was tongues, languages that they didn't know, that they hadn't studied, but that communicated with the listener who was right there. God understood that. God personalized that. He differentiated exactly the tongues that they would speak so that the people would hear in their language. Because what God was doing in the gift of tongues in Pentecost is he's building a bridge from a believer into somebody else's life. And that's exactly what the gifts of the Spirit do today as you exercise your gift. You build a a bridge from your life to the life of those around you. Now, it doesn't have to be tongues. It doesn't have to be a language that you haven't studied. It could be a gift of hospitality could be a gift of mercy. It could be a gift of, a gift of care. But those gifts are bridges that build into others' lives. It's always a gift of being able to tell your story. This is what Jesus has done for me. It's surprising when we see the, the reaction here of the people who are hearing in their own language. In verse 7, utterly amazed, they asked, are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? You know, we missed the point there a little bit. We're historically distant from this scene, but you have to recognize that they're in Jerusalem. That's the the capital city. That's the kind of the place of the intelligentsia. There's the temple and all this kind of stuff. Galileans were from the country. Galileans were considered hicks, kind of the dullards of the group. And so as they see Galileans speaking in languages that they never studied, my language, he's communicating in my language, it's shocking for the people who see that. That's exactly what God wants. He wants to get attention. He wants to create this opportunity so that the communication can happen. And then Peter takes over and he preaches a message. He doesn't preach in all these languages. There, remember, there was a common tongue. There was Aramaic, there was Greek. And Peter preached in the common tongue that they would all understand because the bridge had already been built, the bridge of them speaking in languages. I want you to see the reaction of the people when they heard the tongues. In verse 7, it says, utterly amazed. Verse 12, it says, amazed and perplexed. I want you to understand that as the Holy Spirit takes up full residence in you and as you surrender your life to be used of the Holy Spirit, there's going to be people who have that exact reaction to you. Utterly amazed. Amazed and perplexed. In other words, They don't get you. You don't fit in. 
The things you do, the words you say, the actions you take, they're different than I would expect. Why do you do this? Why do you care about that? Where is this coming from? Amazed and perplexed, there should be people around you who don't get you. Because if you blend in completely, if you look like everybody else and the things you say are totally expected and the actions you take are absolutely positively what everybody would expect to have happen, you're not building a bridge to anywhere. Amazed. And some who heard the apostles said they made fun of them. These guys have had too much to drink. There will be some who mock us like they mocked them. But notice the reaction in verse 12. But some said, what does that mean? That's what we want. And that's what God wants. He wants our lives to so intrigue the people around us that they say, what's different about you? What does this mean, this thing that I see in you? And as we are able to communicate why we're different, the gospel goes forward. These were the people, these people who said, well, what does this mean? These were the people who listened to Peter's sermon and who responded, and the church grew rapidly that day. Each of these broadcasts over the last 10 weeks or so, I've been ending the broadcast, for most of them, with a call for people to consider saying yes to Jesus for the first time. But what I know to be the fact is this message is for believers through and through. And I want to continue that for a moment because maybe it is the case that you're sitting here as a believer or you're watching on your screen as a believer, but you know that I just described you a few moments ago. You know there's a corner of your life the Holy Spirit's not allowed in. You know there's a habit the Holy Spirit is not allowed to touch or a relationship that the Holy Spirit is not allowed to handle. What you're missing is full surrender to the one who loves you more than anything else. And when you have that surrender, here's what happens to your Christian life. It goes from a religion to an adventure. And in that adventure, you feel the pleasure of God as he moves through you. That's the joyful Christian life. And that's what I invite you to. Because it may be that you're here and you're saying, well, that's just what I need. I I know. I know I've closed off some parts of myself to the Spirit. But today I want to open up so that he can have all of me. That's called rededicating yourself to the Lord. And I'm going to lead you in a rededication prayer for those of you who are saying, that's just what I need. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? And at home where you're watching, bow your heads and close your eyes. And I'm just going to lead whoever is sensitive to that need in this rededication prayer. And if you're saying that's me, you would pray a prayer something like this. Lord Jesus, I love you. Thank you for loving me. I know you died for me. And I want more, more of the Spirit in my life. And so I surrender. Every part that I've been holding back, I surrender to you. And Lord, I rededicate my life to you and your service. I want to honor you fully. And Lord, I don't know who's prayed that prayer or something like it, but I know that to one degree or another, all of us need to say something like that because we're all on the way. No one has arrived. And Lord, there are areas that we need to open up more fully to you. Help us to do that. 
And as we do that, and as you take over, Spirit, we pray that you give evidence of your presence. We pray that you would be obvious in us and through us. We pray that we would make a difference for you and that we would communicate most of all to people around us that God is love and that God loves. And because he loves us, he cares about us and he saves us and he forgives us. He knows us. And Lord, we thank you for the mercy and the grace that is born of love. We rejoice in this. Thank you for the chance to gather today. Thank you for the chance to worship together. We love you and we, we, we worship you this morning. In your name we pray, amen. As we close today, we have just one more song about the love of God for you. I know my God. 
He is good and oh so kind What I earned is not what I got and He is just and oh so kind What I deserve is not what I find What more could I say about Him? My God is love. What more could I say about Him? My God is love. What more could I say about Him? My God is love. Would you stand with me for the benediction? And as we're dismissed, hear these words from Romans chapter 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with the hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, that in the Spirit we have hope, we have power. Dismiss us with your blessing. Watch over us, we pray, in the week ahead. Keep us safe. We pray that as you keep us well and safe, you will hear, heal those who are ill and bring us back together ever stronger, ever ready to worship you. In the week ahead, help us to represent you well. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for coming today.